0: You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. The introduction to our show includes the line Open banking will change the way we interact with our money. A bold claim, to be sure. Each chapter of Mr. Open Banking approaches that claim from various angles, often from the perspective of regional happenings, technical standards, or philosophical goals. However, on this episode, our extra long season finale, we go at it head on. To understand how our interaction with money is being forever changed, we need to peel apart the key concepts embedded within our claim namely, money, identity, and open banking. The first concept is money. All too often, the idea of money is something we take for granted, an axiom for a medium of exchange. But money is so much more than just coins or paper. Money is a promise, a promise we all make to each other every single day. It isn't just how we use it that's changing, It's the very idea of how such a promise is made and kept. As it has many times before, the form and function of money is shifting beneath us in ways we are only beginning to understand. Yet understand it, we must. The second concept is identity. Similar to money, the idea of identity is often taken for granted. After all, you know who you are. You have a name, an age, a profession, a citizenship. You share this identity with others through identification, like a driver's license or a passport. But in the digital world, where we increasingly live our lives, such fixed forms of identity start to fall apart. Online, you can have many identities, each made up of unique collections of characteristics, each with varying degrees of anonymity. Digital identity is proving to be quite different from identity in the physical world. The third concept, the one we talk about most on the show, is open banking. Like the other two concepts, open banking is often painted into a narrow frame. On its face, It simply makes it easier for banks to trade data, often backed by regulation and with the consent of customers. But in the large, it aspires to provide something more, especially in combination with entirely new forms of money and identity. When it comes to exploring the interplay between digital money and digital identity, one would be hard-pressed to find someone more knowledgeable than David G. W. Birch. An internationally recognized author, advisor, and commentator on digital financial services, David is often a keynote speaker at industry conferences and international events, a featured guest on business and finance television programs, and a regular contributor to prominent financial publications, including Forbes and the Financial Times. In 1986, he helped found Consult Hyperion, leading to a decades-long career in technology. Today, David leads the consultancy 15 Megabytes, where he helps advise some of the world's biggest banks, financial services organizations, telcos, and IT companies about the future of electronic transactions of all kinds. He is one of the UK Payments Power 10, one of Europe's top 40 people in financial services and one of the top 100 global fintech influencers for 2021, to name but a few of his many accolades. David has published four books, including The Currency Cold War in 2020, and 2014's Identity is the New Money, his seminal and prescient work on the future of finance. David, thank you for joining us.
1: Not at all, thank you for having me, that's very flattering.
0: the two big subjects you cover are digital money and digital identity. Over the course of this discussion, we'll try and cover both of those and then attempt to tie them both back to open banking. Let's start with money. In your work, you've talked about tally sticks, stones from the island of Yap, Mpeza, and Mondex. What do all of these have in common. What is money?
1: The standard definition is money is a means of exchange, a store of value, a unit account, and sometimes a mechanism of deferred payment. And there's lots of little stories from history you can use to illustrate that, but you mentioned tally sticks. So let me use that to illustrate the example. Shortly after the the Norman invasion of 1066, this was William the Bastard's illegal invasion and genocidal regime change, there was the need to collect taxes. And the way this was done was by having sheriffs, essentially, of the different shires. So the question was, how could you record how much tax was due in a society that was largely illiterate? And the way that this was done was actually quite ingenious. And this was the tally sticks. So what people would do is they would record the amount of tax due as notches essentially on a wooden stick and then they would split the stick in two and the king would keep one half of the stick and the sheriff would take the other half of the stick. And so when the taxes became due, the sheriff would show up with the money and his half of the stick. You put the two halves of the stick together and you have pretty unforgeable proof that this is the right amount of money. And that was actually a pretty good system. But quite often, kings don't want to wait for the taxes to come in because they need to spend the taxes on something urgent, invading Scotland or whatever's going on. Instead of borrowing money, which they weren't allowed to do or weren't supposed to do, they started to sell the tally sticks at a discount. That's because the the tally sticks are effectively a bond. Because you and I know that selling tally stick at a discount is the same as borrowing money at interest. But fortunately, God wasn't as good at economics, so they could get away with this. So fairly soon, a market began to develop because the stick, which was a mechanism for deferred payment, became a store of value. So merchants would buy the sticks because it was easier to transport the sticks around the country Soon you had a market that was discounting these sticks in time and space. If I lived in London, for example, and I had a stick for the taxes for Kent, which is next door to London, that would have a smaller discount than taxes that I would have to go a long way away to try and collect. And similarly, sticks that were for taxes that would fall due soon had a smaller discount than for ones that were further away in time. So you had this market developed. And people would start to buy the sticks because they were a convenient alternative to carting cash around the place. They became a store of value. It was a good technology. It was widely adopted and it was used for a very long time. Now, the discounts on the sticks would vary from time to time depending on what the kings were up to. And if you thought the king was going to renege on all of his debts, then the discounts would be huge. If you thought the king was going to pay, they'd be small. But nonetheless, over a period of a few hundred years, the system worked very well. And because the English are a very conservative people, these sticks remained in use until 1826, some 500 years after the invention of double-entry bookkeeping and banknotes. And then in 1826, they came to a very English decision, which was they would stop using the sticks and start using ledgers instead. But they'd keep the sticks in storage just in case the whole writing thing didn't work out and you needed the sticks again. And finally, in 1834, they decided the sticks were no longer needed and they should be burned. And they put the sticks into the furnaces at the Houses of Parliament, rather too enthusiastically, and burnt the whole place to the ground. But you see the point. The technology started off As this mechanism for collecting deferred payments, it worked, so then it became a store of value. It worked and it was convenient and portable, so it became a medium of exchange. And the unit account was the pound sterling. Because contracts would be written to say, I rent this field from you and I'm going to pay you one shilling in gold every year. But neither of us have got any gold or have ever actually seen a shilling. But nonetheless, the whole thing worked. Okay, so why is that story important and or interesting? I hope it's interesting. Because in the society where those sticks circulated, there was pretty much no money. I mean farmers would run up bills throughout the year and then pay those when the harvest came in. And the kind of mutual cross obligations in the village or the you know the smaller area were a substitute. Kochelakota said money is a primitive form of memory. At a certain point, when you began to scale, you needed money because you could no longer remember all of those obligations. But so long as you could remember those obligations, you didn't have circulating medium of exchange. When we went into the Industrial Revolution, of course, you moved away from a feudal society, an agricultural society. The need to pay money wages meant you had to have circulating money. The banknotes that were circulating at the time, I think the £5 note was the smallest banknote. And that was, I don't know, whatever, that was a year's wages for a labourer or something. So the private sector stepped in and began to mint these copper tokens, which circulated as money. And then eventually, because there was so much competition, it was hard for people to make a living out of those. So eventually the Royal Mint stepped in and started making money in sort of mid-Victorian times. The relationship between money and identity, or actually more strictly, I should say, reputation. It's just that reputation is in certain circumstances a substitute for a circulating medium of exchange. Now, given that we're moving into an environment where everything is online, everything is connected, the ability to establish the instantaneous reputation of all parties to a transaction becomes possible again. You have to question. Well, if you can do that, aren't we sort of going back to this kind of pre-industrial everything on credit? Everything is interrelated, interdependent, based on trust, based on your identity? When I sat down to write the book, the original reason for writing it was because I was working in payments. All of the really difficult payments problems we were dealing with seemed to me actually to be identity problems. That was how I came to start thinking about that. I guess I was thinking about that. And speculative way, but as I began to sort of work through it, the money we're heading towards more resembles the money of the past than the money
0: of the present, because it's more to do with identity. That was a wonderful overview of the grand narrative. Let's try and peel that onion a bit. Before we get to identity and trust, let's talk about the steps from cash to digital money, do you believe cash is going to disappear? And if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing?
1: Well, so I'm rather with the William Gibson view of this. So in I, I loved all those William Gibson cyber, cyberpunk books of the 80s. That's kind of, that helped to sort of shape my thinking about a lot of things. But in one of the books, Burning Chrome, the protagonist who finds himself in the future, finds himself stranded somewhere, and he has some money, but he can't buy anything with it. And the quote is, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but it's it's something like, it wasn't that cash was illegal, it's just that you couldn't do anything legal with it. Yeah, that's kind of a description of Sweden now, never mind the sort of cyberpunk far future. So money won't disappear, but it will become irrelevant you'll have post-functional cash, of course. I mean, you'll still need to pin something to a bride's dress at a wedding and a mobile phone really isn't going to function that way. So I can well believe that post-functional money will survive essentially for ceremonial purposes, but for day-to-day use, it will be relevant. Do I think that's a good thing? Well, actually I do. And I, I know I'm going to get yelled at by all of the Bitcoin maximalists. Oh, you know, if you don't have cash, then you get spied on and you're an instrument of the state and all this sort of thing. But of course, that's a function of how you design the digital currency. And I think if you look at the experiences of the consulting company that I helped to found, Consul Hyperion, they worked on one of the most successful cash replacements of all time, which is MPESA, and also one which failed, which was Monbex. And from both of those, you learn some pretty useful lessons, which... I think, inform the debate about central bank digital currency. Now, I feel that, that you know, my opinions about central bank digital currency are much more well-founded than some other people's, but it is based to some extent on experience. So will cash disappear? No. Will it become irrelevant? Yes. Is that a good thing? I think broadly thinking it is. I understand all of the arguments which say some people become marginalized or excluded if they can't use cash. And that's certainly a challenge to the technologists when it comes to the design of cash alternatives. But for people who are trapped in a cash economy, these are the people who, if they lose their cash, it's gone. They don't get it back. If I lose my bank card, I don't care. They'll send me another one. I don't lose any of my money. These are the people who get shaken down or robbed. These are the people who don't have access to online good deals. This whole thing about we should preserve cash use no matter what the cost in order to support people who are essentially trapped in that economy, I don't think that's the right way forward. For people who want to use cash for money laundering and tax evasion and drug dealing and bribing politicians and so on, that's a different issue. I certainly think if you look at the figures for the amount of cash in circulation compared to the amount of cash that's actually used for retail transactions, I think those figures tell their own story. I think Bundesbank If I remember correctly, their figures were that I think something like 9 in 10 of the banknotes that they produce are never used in retail transactions. They're purely for stashing and hoarding. Will the cash disappear? No. Is that a good thing? I think yes. I think we should be able to protect marginalized members of society more effectively than by
0: just giving them cash. You allude to Bitcoin maximalists and different approaches to designing digital currencies, including CBDCs. Can digital currencies be used to embody different types of values? What influences these values? And will this be part of what you call the currency cold war? That's a
1: good point. So when when I say the future looks more like the past, where you had these kind of more local currencies circulating, and actually even in a place like England, if you go back four or five hundred years, there were lots of different kinds of money circulating because there was English money, there was florins from the continent, there were ducats and gold coins from, from the Middle East and so on. People were used to having different kinds of money in circulation. It wasn't really a big deal. So when I say that we might be going back towards something like that with, with more currencies and local currencies that more closely reflect the values of the communities that use them, But local in the metaverse sense doesn't mean the same as in the universe sense. So those currencies used to be based on geographic locality. But of course, in the metaverse, it's a different kind of locality. It's the multiple overlapping communities you belong to. For example, if there's a community that wants to use money with strong privacy, that's one kind of community... If there's another community that wants to use money that's based on gold or commodities, that's another kind of community. There may be communities that want money that reflects values to do with climate change and carbon or helping to boost local economies or, I mean, there could be all sorts of different reasons. But the barrier to creating currencies has collapsed because of new technology. So even if you knew nothing about the technologies themselves, you'd imagine that we'd be in a time of great experimentation. The great arrow of time points towards decentralization. Where a fantastic new technology for currency is invented, Bitcoin 2.0 or whatever it is, lots of people can create their own currencies. It won't be a question of, you know, using that currency to implement one global currency it seems more likely to me that people will take that technology and use it to create lots of different kinds of money. It sounds a bit crazy when you first think about it. I mean, why would we have lots of different kinds of money? Why wouldn't we just have a galactic credit, or whatever it is they have in Star Wars? But I think the more you think about it, the more it makes sense that there should be different kinds of money to serve different kinds of communities.
0: Earlier, You described money as memory. Does that mean that money is really a platform for trust?
1: Yes. And when you began to scale from those primitive societies where everybody could remember the mutual cross-obligations that made society function, once you scale into, you know, you move away from your village and you move into Ur, or Babylon, or wherever. Once you move into a big city, you can't remember all those obligations. So you have money as an intermediary, and your trust then goes into the money rather than the counterparties. And that's, I think, what we're moving away from now. Since you've got no way of establishing trust in the counterparties, you have to have trust in the money itself. When I'm in the US, you have to have the trust in the $100 bill. But we're moving away from that in the always on interconnected, decentralized finance world of the future. Things will be a little bit different. If I meet you and I want to do business with you, what will be the determinant of whether I can do business with you? Is it that you have some bitcoins, which obviously are unforgeable and blah, blah, blah. Or is it your reputation? Is it you know, your equivalent of your eBay stars or your bank reference or something like that? That's much more important. I can't help feeling that therefore that's the way things will sort of
0: shake out a bit. Money is such an integral part of our lives that we often don't give much thought to what it actually is or how it works. In recent years, the rise of cryptocurrencies has very much raised the profile of such questions But for most of human history, money wasn't nearly so static as it has been for the last few decades. Over the centuries, money has not only been coins and paper, but wooden sticks, enormous stones, cowrie shells, knots in strings, and a multitude of other physical things. As time wore on and civilization spread, it became entirely normal to carry many different currencies from many different lands. This was not the exception, but the norm. In the U.S., the period from 1837 to 1862 saw the circulation of over 7,000 different kinds of paper money. That's because money itself is not intrinsically valuable. It's really just a substitute. For trust, It is a way of remembering the relationships we have and the obligations we make to each other. The only reason we need cash, whether beads or coins, is because it's impossible to remember so many different relationships. Or at least, it used to be. Today, the supercomputers we have in our pockets are more than capable of keeping track of all these commitments. That's why David believes we are returning to the money of the past, what he calls a panoply of private currencies, where we all conduct commerce directly in a multitude of digital currencies and cash becomes utterly irrelevant. In such a world, money as we know it today is replaced by a much more personal medium of exchange, reputation which is in turn inexorably tied to the subject of our second act, Identity. Now that we've discussed digital currency, let's switch gears to the other big subject on our program, digital identity. You have often said that our understanding of identity, our mental model is broken broken how
1: it's reputation which is the key transaction enabler so what are the components of that reputation there's some digital identity there's obviously some real identity attached to that like my physical identity but there's also sets of credentials which are attached to that identity and it's the history of those credentials over time which is the reputation. So what's the digital identity they're attached to? Well, if you start to think of it as a digital copy of a passport or a driving license or something, that doesn't really work because those things aren't intelligent. They're not smart. They don't interact. One of my sons just lost his driving license actually, um, going on a, a night out clubbing, why do people have to take their driving licenses with them when they're going out to get drunk? Well, because driving licenses are needed as a proof of age. So, as a consequence, kids take their driving licenses and passports with them on drunken nights out, and you end up with lots of lost driving licenses and passports. When you show your driving license to somebody, first of all, the driving license doesn't know who's looking at it. It doesn't know whether you're allowed to have access to any of this data or not. And also, it gives up all of the data. The driving license is giving up your name and address, and date of birth, and all sorts of other things, which are none of the bar's business. A digital identity is. Intelligent, it interacts. It can ask those kind of questions. It can choose what information to give up. There's all sorts of things that you would want a digital identity to do, which a digitized identity just can't do. And point one is that digital identity is not digitized identity. It's something much more of its transaction space,
0: if you like. You often talk about the distinction between identity, And attributes of that identity. Can you explore that distinction? So, for a digital identity to be
1: useful, it has to have a persistent identity, but that's not the same as my identity. There's two sorts of bindings, if you like. So, something has to bind the digital identity to the thing in the real world, e.g., me. And that's quite complicated and time consuming and expensive because you've got to look at my passport and driving license and. To decide that it's really me. And then there's the binding between the digital identity and the attributes which you're looking for as part of a transaction. So let's say there's an attribute which is I'm a British citizen, I'm over 18, I have a Barclays bank account. I mean, all of these things are facts about me. But to make those useful, they have to be kind of attested to by somebody that you would trust. So if I present the attribute, I'm over 18, And you say, okay, well, who says you're over 18? And I'm saying, well, I do. Well, you're like, well, that's not much help. How is it helping me that you attest to the fact you're over 18? And that's an age-old problem. There's rabbinical commentary on this thing, which says if you have a transaction, then the signatures that are important are not the signatures of the transaction participants, but the signatures of the witnesses. The important signatures on a marriage certificate aren't the bride and groom, but the witnesses. This is a good way of thinking about it. If I tell you that I'm over 18, that's not much help. You need a witness that will testify to the fact that I'm over 18. And that could be the bank or an insurance company or Disney or, I mean, whoever, whoever you trust. I mean, trust as in who can you sue if it turns out not to be true. But nonetheless, you can imagine in a digital identity world, Transactions are based on those credentials, that is, the attributes that are attested to by witnesses that you trust. And the history of those credentials over time, i.e., the reputation, becomes the bit that's really important. It's very hard to forge. It's very valuable. It's something which is, you know, the way that you play in that kind of future society. So those things are all, all sort of linked together. So, in the very simplest example, I walk into your bar, your device says to me, by which I mean my device, okay, I need to know that you're over 18. And my device would say, well, okay, I've got 27 credentials that say I'm over 18. Here's who signed them. And then your device would say, well, actually I only recognize three of those. So essentially because I've got the public keys, I recognize, you know, the state of California, Walmart, and Disney Corporation. I choose one of those to give back to you. You look at it. The digital signatures are all correct. You, these things would contain a public key. You construct a cryptographic challenge against that public key, which you send back to my device. The only device in the world that can answer that challenge is the device that holds the corresponding private key. So the private key needs to be used. So my iPhone or whatever would then ask me to authenticate. You know, I put my thumb on it or I type in a passcode or something like that. Your data gets decoded, then it gets sent back to you. So now you know that whoever is the owner of that credential, you've just spoken to the device that has the corresponding private key and it's been authenticated. It's almost certainly Dave. And that whole thing would work in milliseconds. And to the customer, you're just walking in and waving your phone over a, a thing by the door, the iPhone of the nightclub doorman or something. You wave your phone, you put your thumb on it, and he either sees, a picture of your face or a red cross, you're in or you're not. What I think of as the ceremony of digital identity has really got to be that simple. But under the hood, there's a set of keys and certificates and digital signatures, encryption and decryption, which means that the whole thing works properly and can't be gained and forged and so on. When I talk about digital identity, when I talk about attributes, when I talk about credentials, I mean, very specific things like that. I'm not talking about them generically. I I'm imagine them as part of a functioning digital
0: identity infrastructure. Your examples seem to draw out the distinction between verifying identity versus verifying entitlement. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely spot on.
1: And in general, I think a good sort of general rule for the future is that we want to keep identity out of transactions. The more places your identity comes into transactions, the more the risk of identity theft and fraud. I'll give you a very good example. I was down in Australia a couple of weeks ago. In Australia, they had a massive data breach of Optus, the telecommunications company, and people's name, address, date of birth, social security numbers, were stolen and for a lot of people their passports and driving licenses were stolen as well I'm still kind of thinking well you know why why is the telco got copies of your passport and of course it's because of some government regulation which says the telco has to know your customer and that sort of thing so they end up with copies of your passport so when they get hacked copies of your passport get stolen with it but if you think about it there's no real reason for them to have that because the bank already knows who you are When you go to get your phone the bank could tell them we know who this person is here are the credentials you can bill against this identity etc 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 in an attribute based world your personal information stay locked up safe and sound hopefully in bank vaults or somewhere like that and it's the credentials which are used as part of the reputation economy And I think that's a much safer way of having a kind of online world.
0: That term, reputation economy, what is more important than identity or reputation?
1: Okay, you can't really say that that identity is not important. Of course, there are circumstances where identity is important. Sanctions checking and tracking down criminals and all this sort of thing. But generally, for 99% of the transactions you're involved in on a daily basis, it's your reputation which is the more important factor. I just bought a shirt on eBay a couple of days ago, and I think that kind of illustrates it very well. I haven't the slightest idea who the person I bought the shirt from was. I mean, there's a name there, but I didn't check the name.
0: What I checked was how many reviews have they got and how many stars. Reputation, economy, reputation, transactions. Here's a quote from your 2014 book. Identity infrastructure in our online society will mean that there is no longer any need for circulating a medium of exchange in the form of cash. Is that what you're describing, paying for things with your reputation? If you imagine a future
1: whereby you have a functioning digital identity infrastructure, so assets and and the claims on assets are managed inside that infrastructure, then when we come to execute a transaction, the supercomputer that's the end of my mobile phone and the supercomputer that's the end of your mobile phone can between them work out some basket of assets that needs to be exchanged to settle up the transaction. Like if you and I are doing a deal you're going to sell me this lovingly hand-painted Dungeons and Dragons miniature. And I say to you, okay, well, I've got half a pot of black paint, I've got some apples, and I've got a ticket for the bus next Monday. You'd be like, this is insane. Just give me some money because we can't resolve what economists call the double coincidence of wants in physical space in finite time. In an online world where it's actually our supercomputers that are having that conversation and they have access to gazillions of assets across all sorts of liquid markets, it would take them nanoseconds to come to agreement. Let's say you say some unit of account that makes sense to you. So I want two galactic credits for this. Galactic credits mean nothing to me. I live in Wessex. So the price comes through to me as four Wessex groats. And I think, well, that's a fair price. I hit okay. But there are no Wessex groats or galactic credits in our wallets. What's in our wallets is these spectrum of tokens that are all sorts of digital assets for different things. And they would get matched up and and settled through that. Now, you probably think, well, that sounds crazy. That sounds like a technologist talking. But actually, there was a very good article by Matt Harris from Bain, who's one of the key fintech investors that I listen to, a very thoughtful guy. And he wrote an article about this in Forbes a couple of years ago saying, look, why would we need money when we have digital assets? And actually I subscribed to that line of thinking. The far future, I don't even see the kind of intermediary of currencies at all. In the far future, you would never take your wealth such as it is out of assets, and hold it as
0: money. You would just never do that. In a recent interview, you said that you had become frustrated by the identity problem. But then after the pandemic, you became excited again. Why? What changed? Before the pandemic, the lack of
1: digital identity infrastructure was driving me crazy. And the inefficiency that goes with it was incredibly very frustrating you know so during the pandemic the need went up the cost of not having it went up and I think there was a realization that we have the technologies that we need to fix it so I guess when you put all those things together I do think there's been a shift in the atmosphere actually there's a lot more positive stuff going on right now around digital identity identity wallets
0: verifiable credentials attribute exchanges all this kind of stuff it's buzzing again I think As you said, many countries are building various kinds of digital ID schemes in an effort to modernize their identity infrastructure. But you would prefer, rather than a digital identity scheme, a digital entitlement scheme.
1: That goes back to this point about identity versus attributes. The default situation should be that your personal information is never part of a transaction. Generally speaking, you get asked who you are as a proxy for some key in some other database that contains the attributes they actually want. Are you an employee? Are you a UK citizen? Are you over 18? Now, if we have you know, a feeling about moving in that direction, I've always thought that it should be the banks who are the play the leading role in this. It should be the banks because they've already done the KYC it's already a sunk cost for them it should be the banks that sort of work together to do things properly in this space I mean I say this despite any evidence whatsoever they'll actually do that but I have a feeling that's the better way forward I don't think certainly in the UK I don't think we'd be comfortable with what you might think of as the the sort of Asian solutions like Adha in India where you have a, a sort of big government database with everybody in it and you have to use your fingerprint every time you want to get anything done. Or sort of the Chinese, very centralized. I don't think we'd be comfortable with those necessarily. These more federated offline solutions I think are better solutions.
0: Like money, identity is a concept that is often misunderstood. Especially the digital kind. Your identity is not a single thing, but rather a collection of attributes. You could be 18 years old, or a Canadian citizen, or a doctor. When that attribute can be verified by some trusted witnesses, it becomes a credential. And when these credentials are verified over a period of time, that forms your reputation according to david it is your reputation that will in fact underpin the currency of the future more important than your identity your reputation is what will ultimately determine who you trade with and who will trade with you if money is a platform for trust then reputation is what creates value In a digital world, checking each other's reputation programmatically is trivial. Already today, we are quite used to looking at reviews and star ratings, likes and hearts, driving our decisions on who we'd like to deal with and what we'd like to buy. Having our devices do so automatically is a relatively simple step. Once a reputation is established and the decision to trade made, how the transaction is settled becomes a matter of convenience. Pick your preferred digital currencies or assets from a universe of options, and your device will do the rest. But this begs the question who will validate your reputation? Who will act as a trusted witness? to your credentials and do so in a way that keeps what David calls the ceremony of verification as simple and discreet as possible. More than likely, there will be many such providers, but there is one type of organization that is uniquely well-suited. Banks. It is on that note that David and I move to our third act an attempt to tie what we've learned about digital money and digital identity to the world of open banking. Fundamentally, open banking is about creating common standards for the secure exchange of financial data. Today's versions are usually limited to retrieving retail accounts information and initiating retail payments. However, there's nothing in the standards that say the accounts and payments can't be based on digital currencies. Do you think that's where we're headed, where digital currencies and let's say regular currencies are handled the same way?
1: Broadly speaking, yes.
0: I'd make another point about it as well. If you're looking at the UK,
1: for example. If you spoke to a lot of people who were very pro-open banking here, and that would include me, by the way, I think a lot of people would say it would have been a lot smoother and easier if we'd sorted out the digital identity problems first, before we moved into open banking, because it meant open banking had to build its own directories and, and so on. It would have been much better if there had been a digital identity infrastructure in place to draw on. So digital identity isn't a precursor for open banking, but I certainly think it makes open banking a lot easier. There's also a reciprocal relationship. We think of banking in terms of money and payments and so on. Let's say you want to know that I'm over 18. Well, one way I could prove that I'm over 18 is by proving that I have a credit card because in the UK, you have to be over 18 to have a credit card. How would I do that? Well, it's easy. You you know, you just bounce me to... Barclay cards and I log into my Barclay card or I log into my Amex card or whatever, they return a cryptographic token to say that, yes, this person has a Barclay card. It doesn't say who I am, doesn't say anything. It just says, yes, this person has a Barclay card. Well, actually for you, that might be more than adequate for your own sort of due diligence. So using open banking to establish certain facts about people as opposed to sort of sending money around I think is really interesting and and it's already exploited there's already businesses in that space but yeah so I think open banking would benefit from digital identity but similarly digital identity benefits from open banking it's very symbiotic
0: therefore should open banking API standards be explicitly extended to support KYC and other identity functions Open banking is great, but it's a
1: first step towards open finance. And open finance is a step on the path towards
0: open everything. I'm in favor of open everything, frankly. Does that mean that open banking efforts and digital identity efforts are destined to collide? No, I don't think it means that
1: at all. I think good digital identity infrastructure is greatly to the benefit of open banking and open finance and open data. So I, I see it in a much more positive way than that. I mean, if you go if you go down the whole open data route, well, let's say that the example I just gave you, you know, my accountant wants to know, am I over 18? Do I live in the UK? Does somebody know who the hell I am? Have they done KYC? Well, bouncing me to my bank and having me log into the bank solves that problem, you know, frankly. But now suppose the accountant wants to know what my financial advisor thinks about something or what my investments are or something like that. I need to be able to give permission to my financial advisor to disclose data that they have to the accountant and so on and so forth. And in order to enhance my financial health, you don't just need access to my bank data. You don't just need access to my mortgage and pensions and things like that. You need access to lots of data. And I would have thought for a great many people, the sort of machine learning supercomputer that you need to sit behind that data to help people have better financial health is actually not that complicated. Uh, it's getting the data that's a sort of complicated bit. I think it's a good thing and I think they're linked together. I'd actually go a bit further than that as well because I think the open data approach is also a way of dealing with the problem of big tech data hoarding, which I know isn't the subject of today's discussion. But I think an added benefit of going down that route would be to do something about that. And that would help to grow the data economy overall, in my opinion. So, no, I don't think they're the collision at all. I think they're, they're very supportive, mutually supportive. Perhaps
0: rather than the word collision, the word merge might be more accurate? Do you see them merging?
1: I think you could say, can you see these co-evolving?
0: I think the answer to that is, yeah. Does this then position banks as custodians of identity or perhaps even custodians of reputation? And what would you say to those who perhaps think the role is better served by someone other than banks? I think banks are the place to start. Is it possible that in the future
1: you might have specialist institutions in that place? Entirely possible. Might it be media companies or social media companies or might it be retailers or I don't know, it could be anything. I don't say I'm such a genius. I know that banks are absolutely the best place for all of this. I just think uh, banks are certainly the place to start, in my opinion, which I think is a slightly
0: different claim. What is the role of consent in this? discussion? How does it relate to entitlements?
1: So in some cases, you need to actively give your content for an entitlement to be shared because I might have an entitlement which says I'm a member of some minority community or something and I don't want you to know that. I might not want you to know that I work for a censure. There's all sorts of things that I might not want you to know and so, therefore, if you ask for them, I should have to give my consent for those entitlements to be presented. On the other hand, there are some override. If you're law enforcement and you've got a proper warrant, should I be able to withhold consent? Well, you know, probably not. In the interests of a safer and more secure society, there should be some entitlements that can't be withheld in certain circumstances. But the general case is that I should be required to consent.
0: You brought up big tech. Let's go there. In a 2018 lecture on open banking, you posited that there would be unintended consequences, whereby the tech giants, masters of data that they are, would use these new APIs to scoop up as much banking data as they could get their hands on without giving anything back. Does that mean you believe reciprocity? should be a requirement of open banking. Should the GAFAs have to share their data too? Yes, they should.
1: I came to that conclusion from a more technological perspective. In a way, I'm really surprised that big tech hasn't taken more advantage of this. I don't completely understand why. My only sort of slight explanation for it is that a lot of big tech companies are based in America, and so they're not used to dealing with more sophisticated payment and banking infrastructure, they don't have open banking as sort of an essential integral part of their strategy. That's the only thing I could think of. I mean, I'll give you an example, like Facebook with Facebook Pay, you had to sort of link up a debit card to it. I never understood why they don't just link up to your bank account and send the money directly from your bank account to the other person's bank account. That would seem like much simpler to me. Like, What's it got to do with debit cards and debit rails and, you know, all this sort of thing? I think in a world where identity and money are kind of more integrated in that way. So I'm in Facebook and I owe you $10 for a ticket or something. In Facebook, I can just say send $10 and it just goes from my bank account to your account. You know, that seems me to be quite a good thing, that degree of integration. I don't see a problem with that. Does that mean that big tech will inevitably take all of that stuff over? People say, well, look, big tech demonstrably knows how to deal with big data. And it's not clear that banks do particularly. But also, banks aren't stupid. At some point, they're going to have a strategic vision that encompasses identity and reputation as they respond to gradually shrinking transaction margins on payments and start to look at the value-added services around them. Identity is one of the more obvious ones. So, I guess I'm sort of optimistic about that sort of thing, to be honest.
0: One thing we have in common is that we're both trying to steer the ship in the right direction to ensure that the future of money benefits society as a whole. How do we and our compatriots out there make sure that happens?
1: The things that I think are the ways forward verifiable credentials and this sort of thing. If you work in this space, those things are pretty much part of the landscape. But actually to the, the regulators and the legislators, those things aren't clear at all. A lot of these things sound sort of quite counterintuitive to them, actually. You know, this idea that you can, you can prove that you're over 18 without disclosing your date of birth must sound a bit odd to them. If you don't know cryptography and things, then how would you, how would you know anything about that? I would say, rather than moaning about it, I think the onus is on us to come up with more effective ways of communicating the possibilities.
0: How would we know when we've done better?
1: Well, I suppose the kind of infrastructure I'm imagining, this idea that you, you walk into the bar and you wave your phone over something and it goes green if you're allowed in and red if you're not, but absolutely none of your personal data is part of the transaction. It's when the ceremonies have reached that simplicity that I think we'll know that we've got somewhere. There are measures you can make. I mean, in the UK, for example, if you just look at the raw figures for fraud, you could certainly make some measurements around that. Has fraud gone up or down? That sort of thing. But I I prefer to think in terms of ceremony and simplicity. When can people use these technologies without knowing anything about them? I go to eBay, I log in, something pops up on my phone, I put my thumb on it. Under the hood, there's some incredibly powerful cryptography to stop me from being impersonated or ripped off. But I don't know anything about it. I think that's what I'd like to get to. It links to this kind of back to the future thing, the feeling that I have around identity and money, which is you know the structures that we had before the kind of urban anonymity of the industrial revolution, are the structures that we're sort of rebuilding through digital technology. And so, in a way, I feel in harmony with them. I don't think we're trying to build something that cuts across who we are or what we do. I think we're trying to build things which support who we are. I feel quite good about that.
0: David, where can our guests find out more about you and your work with 15 megabytes and beyond?
1: Oh, just go to www.dgwbirch.com or dgwbirch on LinkedIn or dgwbirch on Twitter or dgwbirch on Substack or Google dgwbirch.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, David. It was a true honor.
1: Now, thank you. You made it so easy for me, Ail. Those were interesting questions. Thank you very much. Look forward to catching up with you again soon.
0: On November 9th, 2022, just weeks after acquiring the social network Twitter, Elon Musk introduced a revised version of Twitter Blue, a service which displays a blue checkmark beside accounts whose identity has been verified. Previously, the service had only been available to celebrities, politicians, and journalists. So opening it up to the public was a big step. The problem was that Musk offered the blue check mark to anyone willing to pay $8 a month without any actual verification. Predictably, this led to a flood of fake accounts, impersonating well-known figures and brands, essentially hijacking their reputation. Advertisers, Twitter's main source of revenue, ran for the hills, costing the company millions. One could not ask for a more direct example of how reputation is becoming money. Despite Twitter's missteps, the idea of having a public identity verification service that anyone could use, rather than just celebrities remains compelling In a world where reputation is used as currency, having someone act as a custodian of that reputation makes good sense What makes less sense is having that custodian be a social network Banks, by contrast seem like a much more logical choice As David says They already provide identity services, and they already act as custodians of data. Rather than people getting their blue check marks from Twitter, Twitter should be getting blue check marks from banks. As reputation becomes more and more intertwined with commerce, banks have the payment and account systems necessary to close the loop between identity and money. As we move from open banking to open finance to open data, tech giants like Twitter, Google, Facebook, and Amazon will increasingly be compelled to open up their data as well. Such reciprocity is exactly what the smart banks are counting on. Straddling the worlds of regulation and the free market, they are uniquely well-positioned to ensure your data is only shared with those who you've agreed to share it with, and that you get paid for the privilege. Rather than becoming the next generation of data hoarders, banks can strive to become the antidote to the one-sided internet of today. By embracing the business of digital trust, the banks of tomorrow will usher in whole new ways to share data, build reputation, and generate real value. When combined with new forms of money and new forms of identity, open banking becomes the fabric that brings it all together. With that, we bring another season to a close. To our regular listeners, thank you for your continued attention and support. It means the world. To those who have just discovered the show, we encourage you to check out our backlog and hope you come back next season for more exciting episodes of Mr. Open Banking. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever. And we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years, and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.